Last week we began to look at a brief series of lessons in the beginning of a new year from the book of beginnings, that is Genesis. And our theme is God's groundwork in Genesis. And as we said, the groundwork of anything is, is just that. It's, it's groundwork, it's foundation. And there are some, some eternal principles, some extremely valuable, inestimable value <laughs> attached to qualities that uh, we see in the book of Genesis. Last week we looked at the groundwork for God in Genesis. Today we're going to look at the groundwork for God's goodness. Then we'll look at gratitude and grace and the Lord willing growth, all from this great book of beginnings, remembering that in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And not only did God exist, but we have in the Genesis record the fact that God created. God created. God exists. And in our lesson last time, we were able to look at the groundwork for God from three perspectives, using the name of God, guilt, order, and design. The guilt being the moral argument for the existence of God. That is, if there is morality, then there must be a perfect moral being, because if indeed, as the evolutionists try to tell us, everything emanated from a giant explosion, the Big Bang or whatever, from mere matter, from whence did morality come? Matter is not moral. There must be an ultimate perfect moral being in order for morality to exist. That perfect moral being is God. We looked at order or the cosmological argument as it is often called. The cosmological argument. That is the argument from cause to effect. The cosmos this universe, the word cosmos indicates order, an orderly arrangement. We can see the order in this universe. We live in an orderly arrangement. It is an effect for which there must be an adequate and antecedent cause. And both those words, qualifying words, are important. Not just any cause, but an antecedent and adequate cause. Something that existed before this orderly universe, which we know exists, had to exist. But it had to be an adequate cause for this universe. A big explosion in space is not an adequate cause for this orderly universe, which demonstrates so much order, but not only order, but then closely following design. The teleological argument, that is, that this orderly arrangement of things indicates and very clearly demonstrates a purposeful design in its existence. We can see the purpose for so many things in this universe, obviously. The design, therefore, that design demands a designer. We've mentioned before that the, the most renowned atheist of his time, Anthony Flew, who debated Brother Thomas Warren back in 1976, before he died, before Anthony Flew died, he did not become a Christian. He did not believe in the God of heaven, the God of the Bible, but he did ultimately admit, man who was the leading atheist, atheist of his time, he ultimately admitted there had to be 
an intelligent designer behind the design. We're told that it was the DNA in the human structure that convinced him finally and ultimately that indeed there had to be a designer because there is so much design. As David said, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Antony Flew ultimately realized that, but tragically did not, did not come to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we wish would have happened with him and with so many others is that they could have seen that it was not just any intelligent designer, but that it was and is the God who created all things, the God who is perfect in goodness and who has manifested his goodness to us in so many ways, ways at which I'd like to look for a few moments with you this morning. God is found, the name of God is found 32 times in Genesis chapter 1. We find God said 10 times, and we'll talk more about God said in just a moment. But six times we find the word good in Genesis 1, and very good at verse 31, the final verse of chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now as we think about that statement and the goodness of God, we think about goodness from two standpoints, really. There are two ways to look at goodness. There is utilitarian or practical goodness. Things are good in the sense that they are useful. And much of what we read about in, in Genesis chapter 1 falls into that category. In other words, God said, let there be light, verse 3, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, that it was good, that it was useful, that it served the purpose for which God intended it. It was good. And so much of that pertains to that utilitarian or practical goodness. We use that term good in that sense, I suppose, virtually every day. But then there is, there is the sense of moral goodness, moral goodness. You remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? That exchange between Jesus and the rich young ruler, and we ultimately determined he was rich, young, and a ruler from all three accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke when we put it all together. But when he came to Jesus, he said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And remember what Jesus responded with? Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Was he denying that he was perfect in goodness? No, he was affirming it. He was simply asking the rich young ruler to really think about to whom he had come for the answer to his question. Are you willing to take my answer? Because it is going to come from one who is good, that is perfect in moral goodness. Jesus was and is deity. It's tragic that there have been those in the religious world who've tried to take that statement to declare that Jesus was less than God. And they reasoned something like this. 
Jesus said, none is good except God. You've called me good, and I'm not good, therefore I'm not God. <laughs> that misses the whole point. The very opposite was true. Jesus was affirming his deity and did so throughout his ministry. He was simply trying to evoke from within this young man a recognition of the word he had used and to whom it would apply, and therefore are you willing to accept the answer that I am to give? Tragically, the young man was not willing to accept that answer because Jesus ultimately told him after the young man said he had kept all the commandments from his youth up, that is, the commandments under Moses' law to which they were amenable at that time, he said, one thing you like, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And that young man could not accept the answer from God, God on earth, Jesus Christ, and he went away sorrowful. And so there's utilitarian or practical goodness, and then there is that moral goodness, and that goodness is perfect with God, the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and yes, God the Christ. The writer of Psalm 25, attributed to David at verse 8, said, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Good and upright is the Lord. But man, man is also good, not perfect in goodness as God, but man can also be good because of the goodness of God. So with that as a brief introductory background to our discussion, consider the groundwork for God's goodness. First of all, in creation. And there is something of God's goodness that we can see in creation. We see the utilitarian or practical goodness in the rain that falls from heaven, the sun that is shining so beautifully today, in all of those provisions, in the general providence of, of God. As he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, there is a certain amount of God's goodness, obviously, that applies to all creation, because all creation can benefit to some extent from God's general providence. But then there's God's special providence for his people, as he provides for them, not through the miraculous means any longer, but through natural law and the manipulation of natural law behind the scenes or behind the curtain, as it were, as Joseph recognized when his brothers were standing before him, having betrayed him, sold him into slavery, and he ultimately said to them as he revealed himself to them, don't be too hard on yourselves in effect, because you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And yes, there were miracles involved in that in that situation where Joseph was able to interpret dreams miraculously and so forth, but there was also the non-miraculous providence of God at work, just as that non-miraculous providence of God continues to work in our lives, the lives of God's faithful people today. And Joseph recognized it and attributed it to God. But one passage that we looked at briefly last time in Acts 14 and verse 17 Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, Paul says on this occasion, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts 
with food and gladness. Filling our hearts with food and gladness. Oh yes, there's so much of, of God's goodness in the physical provision that he has made for us. And as we look upward at the skies, as I did last night, I was looking up and I caught, thought about the, how clear it was and just how, how beautiful the stars were. And I thought about something I had read recently from Wayne Jackson about how some actually take the vastness of this universe and the fact that it would take, oh, who knows how many light years to travel across this universe and the Milky Way galaxy is just a minute little minuscule part of the vastness of this universe. And Brother Jackson was writing about the atheists who say that's a, such a waste. That doesn't indicate God's presence. That indicates a lack of presence of God because it's such a waste. It is such a waste. No, it's not a waste at all. It's a demonstration of the vastness of God's power, the awesomeness of God, that he created that. And that we are privileged to step outside, as it were, on a clear night and see that and appreciate that. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language in which their voice is not heard. Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The vastness of the universe declares the glory of God. The creation itself is a witness to not only God's existence, but to some extent God's goodness. And we need to appreciate that. But not only creation gives us some insight into the goodness of our Creator God, but communication. God said, remember, is found in Genesis 1 ten times. Aren't you glad God said, let there be light? And there was light. Aren't you glad God said, let there be a firmament? Aren't you glad that God said, I will make man in my image? Let us, the Godhead, make man in our image and after our likeness. How tragic it is that man spends so much time trying to divorce himself from the idea that he is made in the image of God so that he can do what he pleases without being answerable to a maker, when in fact, if he would embrace, if he would embrace fully the concept that he's made in the image of God, what would happen to the suicide rate in this country? What would happen to the crime rate? What would happen to all of the evils that plague us seemingly more now than perhaps at any other time in our lifetime? Man is made in the image of of God and God has communicated to the pinnacle of his creation. The Hebrews writer sums it up in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time fast to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. 
He made the worlds. Same Hebrews epistle, Hebrews 3, 4. Every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And yes, in the building of all things, God communicated. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be affirmment. God said, let us make man in our image. And that was communication for which we are grateful, but, oh, how much more so are we grateful or should be for the communication that finds itself deposited perfectly and completely upon the pages of Holy Writ. Communication. The Bible is from God. We've talked about some proofs of that inspiration in the past. I'd like to review some in this lesson, in, in this lesson, in this context, because there are those, tragically, who tell us, I don't care what you say, this book is not from God. Oh, it's a compilation of legend and history, some of which is accurate, some of which is not. But no, it is not communication from God. But what about the preparation that speaks to the inspiration of this book? 1,600 years or so that it took to write a book without contradiction, without disunity, in perfect harmony, written by 40 different writers over a period of 1,600 years, all from economic and social backgrounds of various kinds. Amos, just a herdsman. Daniel, of royalty. And yet, all perfectly harmonized and unified in a way that would be utterly impossible for man to achieve without the guidance of Almighty God and God's Holy Spirit. What about the prophecy? Oh, we've talked about that at various times. And lessons, not just one, but lessons could be taught on the subject of prophecy as a proof of the inspiration of Scripture. I don't care how late the modernists try to date some of the Old Testament books, they cannot date them late enough to remove the prophetic element from them. 300 plus prophecies about the Christ, all fulfilled in minute detail. Daniel's prophecies about the kingdom, all fulfilled in minute detail. Isaiah called the messianic prophet because he prophesied so much about the Messiah. Prophecies that have been completely fulfilled and any honest observer ultimately has to reach that same conclusion. I've mentioned before the individual whose name slips me now but who took his journey as an atheist, well, uh, well solidified atheist, known to his uh, comrades as being a steadfast atheist and yet ultimately confronted the book of Daniel and said, I couldn't deal with it. I was honest enough, in effect, he said, that I could not dismiss those prophecies. They were too compelling. They were too concrete. They were too complete. And therefore, I have to accept this book as being inspired of God. What about its preservation? 
the fact that I can hold it in my hand, despite the fact that there have been those over time who have vowed and declared they were going to destroy it, or who have predicted that it would indeed pass from history. Voltaire, the French philosopher, was supposedly quoted as saying that within a hundred years of his lifetime, Christianity would have completely disappeared from the scene. Obviously, that didn't happen. Voltaire passed from the scene, but not Christianity. How many manuscripts exist for Shakespeare's works? How many manuscripts exist today for the works of Homer or for various other writers whom we do not question as to the genuineness of their writings? But there are 5,000 or so manuscripts in whole or in part of the New Testament alone more than for any other work. The documentation is overwhelming. How did God preserve it? Not through inspired translators, but through, but through good translations and through honest copyists who from generation to generation were so meticulous in the preservation of God's Word that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, when a shepherd boy threw rocks into caves down at Qumran, went in to see what he heard break when he threw his rocks in there, and found these pots that had these Old Testament manuscripts in them, they were discovered to be about 900 years or so earlier than the manuscripts from which the Old Testament that I hold in my hand was translated. About a thousand years. What would one, if he were not a believer in God and Scripture, hope to find from that? Oh, he would hope to find variation after variation, contradiction after contradiction, from those earlier manuscripts to the later ones, and yet those contradictions were not there. There was an amazing harmony between manuscripts that had been copied from the Old Testament writings a thousand years or so before the ones from which our Old Testament was translated. What does that indicate? Very careful copyist where God didn't inspire the copyist, but he, in his providence, did preserve his word down to this very moment in time. Now, I've mentioned even in the lesson last Sunday night that you better be careful about what you hold in your hand and call it a Bible because obviously there are these uh, so-called translations that are anything but translations. And I mentioned from Philippians... The good news for modern man that says instead of uh, the Lord is at hand, they translated it, the Lord is coming soon. That's not a translation. That's a doctrine that's inserted. That's a belief that's being inserted into the text. The Lord is at hand doesn't mean the Lord's coming soon. It means he could come at any time or he's near at hand to assist, as we talked about last Sunday night, but one needs to make sure that one has a good standard translation. The American Standard, the King James, the New King James, these are 
good translations. And God in his providence has preserved them for us in such a way that it should speak volumes to honest observers that this book is like no other. And what about the people? We've talked about in the past the fact that this is a book that describes the good and the bad qualities of its characters as man would not describe them if man were simply writing a novel about David, for example. But God, through the Holy Spirit, tells you the good and the bad. And God, through the Holy Spirit, can describe gutter subjects, if you will, in language that will never offend anyone in proper translation. That's not true of some translations. I wouldn't read certain passages from some translations because I'd be embarrassed to do so. I'm thinking again, I think of the good news for modern man in terms of what Peter told Simon the sorcerer about him and his money and what he could do with his money. And so we need to make sure that we have a properly preserved translation but the people described and the way they're described clearly speak to the inspiration. But we've also talked in times past about the product. And oh, much more could be said about that. What is the product of this book? It's a product that no other book will produce. There's not another book that will completely transform a person's life like this book will transform a person's life. Now, you might read a good book and you might talk about it for days or weeks about how much you really love that book, but I don't care what it is or by whom it is written, it will never produce the product in a person's life that this book has and continues to and will produce if people will simply come to its pages honestly and openly and be prepared to be transformed by it. Oh yes, we can know that the communication that is deposited here is like no other communication. And the greatest, the greatest thing communicated to us in this book is salvation. Salvation. And yes, it all goes back to Genesis to chapter 3, after God had created man and had given him so much, everything he could have possibly wanted, left him free to eat of all of the fruit of the garden, all, you're free to eat of all of this, except there's one tree that is forbidden, and yet man couldn't stay away from it. But God, in his mercy, when man fell, began to unfold a beautiful theme, a beautiful scheme of redemption or salvation. And to the serpent, to the devil, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. A reference ultimately to the sacrifice of Christ, which would be a bruise to the heel of the Savior, the crucifixion itself, but in coming forth from the grave three days later, Jesus would deal a death blow, a head wound, a fatal head blow to Satan himself. And oh, that salvation. Oh, that salvation. 
about which we could speak for days and weeks and months and years, couldn't we? If we really think about it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Greater love has no one than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. For the love of Christ constrains us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. You see, all of this salvation speaks to motivation, should produce motivation. God's goodness in creation, God's goodness in his communication, and especially the salvation that is the theme of that communication should provide motivation. And Paul, by inspiration, knew that, didn't he? Because he said this, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Will it do that for you if it needs to this morning? That is, if you need to repent, if you stand in need of repentance, because you have not expressed your belief in Jesus as the Christ and repented of your sins, changed your mind about those sins, confessed Him to be the Christ, and then been buried with Him in baptism, as He has commanded, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Will you allow the goodness of God to motivate you as it should and lead you to repentance? Or if your need is to come home to your first love as a wayward child of God who knows that you have not lived motivated fully and completely by the goodness of God and that you've basically spurned that goodness by a life that is not being lived now in harmony as it once was with the will of God. Will you come home or will you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? If you need to come we plead with you to respond to his goodness. The goodness in creation. The goodness in communication. Oh, and the ultimate goodness in the salvation that he offers. Will you experience the motivation? And will you come as we stand to sing?